0: Because all the definitions of play suggested there was something trivial about it. And if it exists on an evolutionary time frame and it exists in all these species, it has to be doing something really important. Otherwise, we wouldn't engage in it.
1: Today, we got something a little bit different. We're going to talk about the importance of play. I've got two experts on the subject of play, both for children and adults. Does sitting down and playing matter? What are the benefits when children play, both structured and unstructured? How about us adults? Are there benefits when we sit down and play games? Sit back, relax, listen to two people smarter than me talk about the importance of play.
2: Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast.
1: Craig here on the third floor. Now, this podcast, over the course of 100 episodes, has focused on tabletop gaming, miniatures, war games, board games, and role-playing games. But today, I want to take a step back, and instead of talking about what we play, I want to talk about why we play and why it might matter, why it's important. So the first thing I did is I went to the dictionary, looked at Webster's, and it defines the verb play as to engage in activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. And then when looked at the noun, and that's so similar, uh, it's an activity engaged in for enjoyment and recreation, especially by children. So today's guests are what I consider authorities on play not just for kids but for adults and I wanted to explore why play is important potentially really for all ages. So my first guest is Heather Murphy. Now She's a primary assistant teacher at the Pinewoods Montessori and a leader at Tinker Garden. Now She's made a living engaging children and adults in education and play. So Heather welcome to the third floor. Thanks Craig nice to be here. <laughs> so Heather um I want to probably start with Montessori a little bit, if I could, um, because that's something that I'm familiar with, because I had my daughter in Montessori um, up through pre-K, because I know for, um, and I forgot her first name, what is Montessori's first name?
2: Maria, Dr. Maria Montessori. Thank
1: you. For Dr. Montessori, I know play was important, and play was important as far as discovery and things like that. Did you put weight on play before? Getting involved with Montessori, or was it Montessori that kind of introduced you to that concept?
2: Um, I first started researching types of children's learning when my son was about to start kindergarten. Um, So I was looking at lots of models of education, and I was drawn towards the child led style of learning. Um, And there are a variety of different learning styles that can be described that way. But I was particularly impressed with Montessori uh, education. Um, you know, you just walk into a classroom and it seems very peaceful. The children are engaged, <laughs> they're active. Um, and the things that they learn at very young ages are really impressive. Um, so he. I signed him up right away for kindergarten, and then um, I ended up teaching there. And now my daughter is at the same school, so we're we're a Montessori family through and through.
1: So when I reached out to you, Heather, and you know I talked about play, and I wanted to have a discussion about play. I'd be curious to know, you know, out of the gate, what what is that concept, or what, what does that mean to you, um, the the concept of play, both for children and adults.
2: Um, I mean, for me. I think it evolves. So adults have a certain definition of it. I think it's when you reach a state of flow, you know, you're so immersed in your task that, you know, you feel free. Um, and just for fun, I asked my three and seven year old right before the podcast, since they're also experts and, uh, you know, my son, who's seven, said, you know, when I play with my friends, so for him, it's a very social activity. Yeah. Um, and my daughter, who's three, just said, doing my works. So Interesting. her learning is her play, which was yeah. fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, it. Um, look at you doing research before the podcast.
2: Yeah, <laughs> from the experts' mouths.
1: <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, so my second guest is uh, Patrick McLean. Now he's the president of Reinforcements LLC and the founder of Roughhouse Play. He's a professional writer and has distinct failing of character by being my closest friend for over thirty years. So Patrick, you've been here physically before, but welcome to the third floor. Why? Thanks. Glad to be here. So Patrick. Um, you and I, I think we've talked about this several times, um, maybe not as specific as uh, we're going to get to today. Um, and when I started thinking about this um, as a discussion topic, I immediately thought of you because of the work you did with Rough House Play. Um, so can you briefly talk about what that was?
0: Yeah, so um, my son, uh, when he was in kindergarten, uh, they got in trouble for playing tag at, at the, in the 20 minutes of recess that they gave those kids. So they were forbidden from playing tag, which if, you know, if you know anything about anything, uh, pursuit games are played by every mammal, like all the way down to, maybe all the way into invertebrates. Like it's one of the things that juveniles of all species do. And I was like, all right, this is just, this is wrong. We, we got to have space for, for this kind of play to take place. And we got to make sure that it happens. And then I started researching it more, um, and I can unpack that a little bit, but, um, it's just the fundamental importance of unsupervised play, of negotiating across a game—you know those kind of things. And then I've done martial arts for you know about twenty-five years now, and that kind of rough and tumble wrestling interaction has always been. I've seen how it's brought people closer together, how it relieves stress, how it does wonderful things, and the fact that you know when you and I grew up, um, we we could engage in that kind of play, and it mm-hmm. just—and there were there were large swaths of time. For kids then that were unsupervised, so you really did have to make the game. And then, you know, not to wander too far afield from your question, but but play has this quality that it's like it's it's like a fire, or it's like something that's you know you just it's fascinating of it in and of itself. So you work out your differences with other people because you want to keep playing, and that's just when somebody else provides you the rules. Like that doesn't have that sort of interaction doesn't happen in traditional settings right now.
1: Um, so what's interesting about what you said there, Patrick, especially what kind of gave, gave birth to the concept of, um, the rough house play was the physical aspect of it. And you mentioned it again with, um, with the martial arts, uh, do you consider that an important component of it or just a certain type of play?
0: Uh oh, well, that wasn't, that was a component of rough house play because that wasn't, you know, allowed or encouraged and kids, and there's actually quite a lot of studies that show that they, they need to engage in that sort of play to, um, develop trust, develop limits—you know, just to realize they're not going to break. All of those kind of things um, are very good for development. But in an, the larger thing that I uncovered was there's just no space for unstructured or what I would call minimally structured play anymore. Like uh, I think it was—I think I came across a statistic that was half of the kindergartens in in uh, Los Angeles had zero minutes of recess a day. Yeah, like none like yep. so that that's really that that was really what what led to all that
1: Yeah. And I got to tell you, that's um, going back to you, Heather. That's what really attracted my wife and I to Montessori um, was you mentioned the peacefulness when you walked in the classroom. We were convinced, my wife and I were, that that there was some spell that you learned as a Montessori teacher, because it was unbelievable to have 25 children between the ages of, you know, three and seven all in the same room, just Mm -hmm. being self-directed and everything. It's incredible.
0: Well, how much how much time in Montessori is there for for unstructured play? Because I'm not really familiar with. Montessori. Yeah,
2: I mean, I can completely assure you that on the playground, they're as wild as any other three to six year olds. Um, so I just think the way the materials that Dr. Montessori designed, they are set up so there is one correct way of completing the task. And Her goal was to teach children practical life lessons. So in, um, primary, my age group, they're three to six year olds. Um, they're learning things like how to pour from one glass to another. They're spooning small beads from one container to the other. Um, they're learning how to snap. Um, down a snapping frame or zip their own coats, you know. So we do, we teach them life skills and there's a control of error built into each work. So if they spill, they know that, oh, I have to practice this more. Um, So it sounds very controlled and structured in that there's one correct way. We show them the correct way, which is what they're striving for. But you see them doing this work all infinite kinds of ways. And I think that's where there is room for creativity. There's room for that play. And it allows them the space to choose what's engaging to them, and then experiment within the structure of the work. So over time, as they experiment, they can figure out what's the most efficient or the best way for them to do that. But they're able to do that through experimentation and creativity. Um, And then, you know, this plays out on the playground where it's totally unstructured but they're still given that sense of, you know, they they've been given the skills to kind of have the self control. Um, they have the executive functioning skills that are developing to work out problems in a social context. Then. Mm-hmm.
1: What what I thought was interesting about it was, uh, and two things that you mentioned, Heather, was the modeling aspect of it. I thought it was very very interesting, and the fact that you're, there was modeling for the for the final product, right? But not necessarily modeling for the method and then encouraging of the exploration of how to get from A to B once you know what B was. The other thing that you talked about too, which we I found fascinating was the tactile nature, which gets into some of the physical that Patrick talked about and that it's not just, it's not just academic. It's not just thought. It's, you know, you learn multiplication by picking blocks up and moving things and, mm-hmm. and putting one thing here and one thing there. Um, so all of that, I thought, what um, was really Really, really interesting. So, guys, what we're going to do is take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk to Heather and Patrick a little bit more specifically about play with children and what play can mean uh, for children and uh, maybe uh, how it's changed over time. So we'll be right back. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3 x 3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com. That's with one M. Or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifo game and be sure to tell them Craig from the Third Floor sent you. If you use the promo code Friend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. Is valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So we kind of led into it before the break a little bit, but I want to dig into it a little bit more. And I want to talk about um, where we traditionally think of play. So, you know, when we think about play, when we think about games, a lot of times we think of, of children and and for the hobbyists and the gamers that listen to uh, this podcast, I'm sure it's happened to you all the time where it, when you tell them what your hobby is, it's immediately attributed to being, you know, a kid's type thing and kid's games. Um, during the break, uh, Patrick and I were talking and I uh, one of the things that Patrick mentioned is uh, Patrick, I, from my understanding, you're not a huge fan of Webster's definitions of play that I used in the intro.
0: No, and it's probably not even Webster's fault, but it, it's we don't understand play very well. Um, play is ancient. Play is older than humanity. Play is older than we are as a species. So the question that I came across, and there, there's uh, some good books. Uh, there's a book by um, Stuart Brown called Play. It's a survey of the liter- of all of the research and literature that's gone into play up to, I guess, when the book was written. It was maybe 20 2005. But anyway, one of the questions is in a because all the definitions of play suggested there was something trivial about it. Right. And if it exists on an evolutionary time frame and it exists in all these species, it has to be doing something really important. Otherwise, we wouldn't engage in it. Right. So there's something very serious about play. And what, what I think is it, it's the fastest way to learn. I mean, in, okay. In, in any physical like martial arts, definitely the trick is getting people to a place where they play constructively so they can learn as quickly as possible. And competition is also a form of play. We agree on a set of rules. We're playing a finite, you know, we're playing a game within a structure, but, um, just for exploration, um, it just seems to be the fastest way to learn. And there's something, there's also something about a play state with children. And, and this has been measured too, that um, kids will exercise much harder playing than you can get them to exercise on their own. Right. So you could, you could give them, you could give them a game the, You could give, you know, eighth grader, or, or my eight year old a game to play and he'd play it. But if you get a bunch of eight year olds playing tag, they will run themselves to exhaustion.
1: <laughs> right. Right. So Heather, I'd be curious. Um, one, do you agree with what Patrick said? Let's start there. Yeah, definitely. Well, that makes things less interesting. It's more exciting <laughs> if you guys disagree. So now we move on. Uh, oh, yeah, we move on. I,
2: can, I can be <laughs> I the
1: contrary. should have started with you. Um, but uh, one thought I did have, because you have got, you've got a boy and a girl, and there's a, a bit of an age gap there. And, you know, you talked about how you... Um, you know uh ask them about play and though there's a lot of simulators a little bit of differences but i would be interested um is are you seeing differences in how they play so for example you know where your daughter is now versus when your son was the same age do you see them playing the same way um or or treating play the same way
2: in some ways yes and in some ways no i think no because they're Personalities are different and their interests are different. Um, but i I liked what Patrick was saying about how, you know, all mammals do this. There must be a reason for doing this. Um, and something I learned while I was teaching Tinker Garden classes, these are all outdoor nature based, very open-ended classes where, children essentially tinker with nature materials you know are this is you know in contrast to montessori learning it's completely open-ended it's allowing the children to explore messy things um, <laughs> but they're learning um they they have done research and there are universal um patterns of behavior called behavioral schema that, you know, you've probably seen in your children, family, children, you know, why does all the different colors of Play-Doh get squished together? Why do the peas and mashed potatoes all get mixed into a slurry? You know, why is my kid stacking you know, 50 stickers on top of one another. Why is my child spinning, you know, or spending hours watching the tumble dryer? And these are called behavioral schema. So, you know, the stacking of stickers is a schema called connection and it's building the neural pathways to plan for the future when children are having to sequence or plan out their work schedule or something like that. Um, The rotation is putting them in touch with their vestibular sense. Mm. Um, The transformation of Play-Doh colors. This is essentially messy thinking building onto creativity. Um, And that's the skill that all these tech corporations like Google really are seeking out. So, you know, next time you see your kid or niece or nephew, you know, mixing their dinner together, let them play because they're learning.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, so, Patrick, we talk about, you know, the unstructured play, especially at a very young age in the in the pre-K. um, time but um and i think you know we, we you've seen it with your son i'm seeing it now with my daughter um and heather i would assume you've seen it with your son there's that transition into more uh games right so whether it be board games um something as structured as tag is in its own way um with especially specifically with your son did you see that as a transition? When did he start showing interest in something a little bit more? Let's sit down and play a game.
0: Yeah. Um, that's th- there's a whole lot going on in that question. Um, he's started to show an interest in playing games. Like I, I made a checker set uh, with him and he didn't want to play. It was too early. And then just recently now he wants to play, he wants to play checkers. He wants to play games and we'll follow the rules instead of just making up rules. Um, there's developmental stages. The uh, the father of develop, developmental psychology, a guy named Jean Piaget, wrote a book called the something like The Moral Education of the Child. But what he did is he studied kids playing marbles throughout Germany. And what he found was is every little, every little pocket had different rules to how you played marbles. And all the kids could come together and play marbles of different ages. But if you pulled a younger child out, the younger child couldn't explain the rules. Hmm. So what he what he said is that kids go through they play the game and they just sort of you know they they fumble their way through the interaction which which if you think about how people learn things is at first you fumble your way through it and you try and figure out what's going on you embody the rules before you understand them right. and then they understand them and then they get to a place where they can start to change the rules argue about the rules change the game and that's sort of that was sort of his full his full development but what also what what Piaget observed was that that you learn things about fairness the balance between uh competition and cooperation, right? And and the, all of those things are are mapped up into structured games. So they're they're really profoundly social. Um like if you think about like you've known me me geez it was it's 30 years like, you know, we would play games together and I was not you know the most socially adept person in the world back then. You know what I mean? But but a game, because you have the structure, it it facilitates the interaction so that you can learn you can scaffold those things on the game. So yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that. And it's, it's, I mean, it's just fascinating. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons to have kids, man.
1: <laughs> How about you, Heather? Have you, have you seen that type of transition that Patrick's talking about where for your son as he's gotten older, his, his interest has changed and he, he wants to play a more structured type game.
2: I mean, we've always played board ga- board games since he was young. You know, we started with little memory card games. But now, you know, to my chagrin and my husband's delight, he has introduced <laughs> him to all the 80s video games that my husband used to play, like Gauntlet and Pac-Man oh and you know, I rampage. I don't even know. There's so many of them, um, and now my son a seeks classical education. That out. Yeah, exactly. He seeks that out because it's a social time he can spend with his dad. Which exactly. is great, you know, despite the quality of the games
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, we as we growing up learned it it brought our brains, and Patrick and I and uh, are proof of that as ones that have played those games. But what's interesting about that is, um, I remember um you know, the boogeyman of video games because really, um at my age, it was really the first kind of generation to have video games. Um, there really weren't video games for the generation before before us um and you know i was i'm trying to think of when the mortal Kombat uh video games rating stuff was happening that was probably when we were uh i'll say early high school late middle school Mm -hmm. does that sound right patrick yeah and that's when you know all you know everybody was everybody's decided the video games was going to ruin children um now since they've had all kinds of studies showing that video games can be phenomenal for kids, both in in a thinking process and things like that, Heather, do you find yourself outside of the activity that your uh, your son's doing with your with your husband, which is completely different than just your kids sitting playing video games, right? That's mm-hmm. an activity that they're doing together. Do you put limits on um, any type of gaming with your with your son or even with your daughter, who's younger?
2: Yeah, well, she likes to sit there and cheer them on, you know, and she'll warn them when the bad guys are coming, <laughs> which is really <laughs> cute. Um, So I I think it's just sort of the technology piece that I try to limit, you know, and they're really getting into it. And so it's kind of you want them to enjoy the flow state and the social time. And then I'm kind of the bad guy on the sidelines, like you're 30 minutes in and that's probably enough right before bedtime.
1: Do you find yourself, Patrick, limiting um, like actual video game time? Yeah, we, we limit,
0: we limit stuff like that. I think it's different. I think it's different for every kid. The, the barometer I have uh, with my kids is how are they with social interactions with other people and with adults and, you know, are, is, is do that. And they are just they're unbelievably social. There. Um, so, you know, we, it's, it's, it's like equal time. You can play games and then you got to go outside and run around like an idiot. Otherwise you're going to drive us all nuts. Um, yeah. So my, my backyard looks like a jungle gym.
1: <laughs> um when we you sure think of <laughs> when we think of um skill sets um that we have as adults um i'd be curious starting with you heather are there, are there things that you have now as an adult things that uh, you utilize either professionally or as an adult human being interacting with other adult human beings that you can trace back and think you know i, I it was because of play that that I got better at this because of interactions in a playful environment or th- anything like that. Have you ever tried to trace that back at all?
2: Um we were an army family, so we moved around a lot and often my brother was my main playmate as we were adjusting to the new neighborhood. Um and I definitely think you know, I was able to navigate social social situations just by kind of my experience one-on-one with him um you know siblings always squabble but you have to go through that to problem solve and figure out you know well I have to live with this person so you know <laughs> <laughs> we better figure it
1: out yeah well so you moving several times I guess growing up uh it sounds like did you find hop what methods did you do, do as a child um, or as a young adult to to make new friends? Did did you use play at all to do that, or um, you know, did you find yourself m- maybe not establishing yourself at each of the locations? I, I'd be curious to know that transition as you started to make new roots over and over again.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, it always started out with my brother, and then we would meet neighborhood kids. Um, I used to go fishing with one of my. Neighborhood buddies, so that was our play and then, as I got older, I became a dancer. I would go to dance classes with my friends from school, and that really became my source of play as sort of an older child into mm-hmm. when I was a teenager and as an adult i've um taught dance and have been a dancer so um you know, I think it it went from well all my friends are doing this dance class and we're kind of playful and we you know run around during the dance class to music but then it evolved into my source of play as an adult
1: yeah um so one of the things that i'm struggling with um is uh it has to do with a structured aspect. And what made me think of this is you mentioning the dance classes. Um, my wife grew up in a very, um, structured environment compared to what I grew up in. So for her, it was, you know, she grew up soccer practice, piano lessons and gymnastics on the weekends and boom, 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 where I didn't have any of that as a kid. Um, you know, if I showed an interest in something, I would be, you know, my, Parents would let me go do it, but it was not. This is what Thursdays are. This is what we do on Wednesdays. This is what we do on on Saturdays. Um, and there's a little bit of a tug and pull happening with my wife and I because I, though I love the fact that my daughter is learning piano and gymnastics and all of these things, and if it was left up to me, she would, you know, probably wouldn't be involved in any of that. So it. Uh, thank God for my wife uh, pushing it, but at the same time, I also am trying to balance that out so that we don't are not overscheduling things. Is that a struggle at all in your house, um, Heather?
2: Um, I'm I'm of the school of thought that the less structure, the better. Um, My son does learn martial arts, um, but my daughter's three. You know, some of her peers are already involved in all these extracurricular activities, but You know, they have school all day. That's structure enough. And when they come home, they just want to be free. And I want to allow for that space. Um, you know, as they grow up, their whole life is going to be scheduled. So this is really the time where they just need to relax, you know, have time to play with each other, to spend time as a family. Um, and there's there's plenty of time for that later on.
1: I'd be sure, Patrick, I know uh, you grew up in a similar environment that I did, where our parents barely put up with us, um, <laughs> let alone scheduled us for things. Um, is that something that you um, and your wife are, are dealing with or thinking about? Um, or is there any tug and pull happening there? Uh, we need to find some. I, I think the,
0: the idea here is that they're both going to have to find something that they're going to go learn very well. I don't even care what it is. Um, And Emerson's temperament is, is different than mine. So it's probably going to be different than a thing that I would do. And Abby's temperament is, you know, it's just different. Like, I I don't know. Um, But I think that there, there is, um, who who was it who said this? It was one of the guys from Mythbusters. He said, and he probably stole it from somewhere, but I heard it from him, which is uh, to be good at, you got to be good at one thing Mm -hmm. before you can be good at things. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, yep. so I think that I think that's almost as important as school, which is you have to really like it could be gymnastics. It could, um, you know, but you should really bust your ass at something to figure out what it takes to get good at it so that you can translate that to, to, to other things in later life.
1: Do you find yourself pushing Emerson in that direction to say, Emerson, we need to find something or um, are oh, you just yeah. kind of letting it happen?
0: Yeah, well, it's out there. It's like it, and and it might, might not even be yet, but otherwise, you know, he's really sort of content to sit around the house. I think it's very important for um, people in general to have time to be bored, mm-hmm. but especially kids because boredom is where creativity comes from. Is you know, I mean, you and I, same, same. Like we were bored, we had to come up with things to do. Yep. Um, and and I also think that um, you have to have one of the one of the critiques about school changing class every hour that I read, uh, was really good. was, it, it said, it's all, it's almost a system designed to keep people from depth, right. To mm-hmm. really get in, immersed in something and go after it. And that's bad, but you gotta have, you gotta have time to be bored. Um, I, I, I actually think it's a, uh, cause, uh, my son will mope around being be important and we'll be like, yeah, good job. We'll let him be bored for a while and he'll see if he can figure something out. Um, and he does. And that's great.
1: Yeah, and I gotta say that um, for me, um, I think one of the single qualities—if I had to boil down one single quality—that's brought me the most success professionally—it's been my creativity, because um, that has, for me, has been a differentiator um, between the other people i'm competing against right in the workforce um the ability to to do that and i and i attribute that to play how about for you patrick is there's is there things that you can say right now it's because of playing D with me when we were 13 that you think matters now
0: uh yeah yeah i definitely think that the play and the boredom and to bear this out i mean like you think about some of the people that you that you're up against in the workplace or up against or work with you know that um some of, some of the people are just like insanely impressive people. And maybe they're not very creative. They're very br- brilliant, but they don't have that thing. We have a family friend, family friends who moved out to Seattle. And, uh, you know, they're just surrounded by absolute genius, you know, Microsoft kids, you know, all this very successful, brilliant. And the parents all, I always ask them, your kids are so creative. What do you do? And the mom says, well, I just threw them in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> um but but like if you think about what what role playing gets you or and that that's partially acting too you know so i did a good bit of that and the skills that that gives you imaginatively t- you know to like there's just a lot there's just a lot that you get from games I, and i don't want to downplay um you know there's a lot of the physicality but i mean you and i grew up running around outside too playing games which which there's a tremendous amount of brain development that happens there um,
1: so yeah. yeah and, and you can do that and suck at sports, which is what you and I were.
0: <laughs> well, that was another reason. That was another uh, genesis for roughhouse play because it's gotten to the point where unless you, you are a perfect specimen, right? Right. A perfect athletic specimen. You can't even play on a team, mm-hmm. right? Unless you're the right size. And that's not what games are supposed to be. And there's a whole history of traditional children's games that people would, that, that would play that everyone could play. Like foursquare is a great example. I don't care who you are. You could be missing a leg. You could not have legs and you could play four square with anybody else in the world and everybody would have a good time and you can run around. You develop strategies, all that stuff. You can't play basketball unless you're a certain shape or size. And that's just not what the hell basketball was invented for. It was invented for physical education to get kids up and moving. And now it's totally different. So,
1: well, yeah, and it kind of gets to what I think we've been hinting at, all three of us, which is that the potential that things have gotten overstructured, right? And and over prescriptive. Um, So, guys, let's take another break. When we get back from this break, I want to make a a bit of a transition, which is where we're headed already, which is talking about uh, play as adults, both as what the impact of play as children has on adulthood and playing as adults. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux third edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free that makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes including the discount code.
0: Hi, I'm Keith Suderman, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars. You'll never mistake me for a competitive player, but I really enjoy the analysis and the advice I get from Tabletop Talk. You should be a patron, too. Head on over to Patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, or just click the link in the show notes below.
1: What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? $5 a month? $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. When we created our Patreon, we purposely did not create tiers. We wanted listeners that wanted to support us to be able to choose any level. But I do want to give a shout out to those patrons that uh, donate the most per month. So special thanks goes to Nick Westbrook, Marcus, Craig Chuba, Kevin Smith, Mike Schmidt, Cody Ravicki, Drawn X, Shergay, Carl Lee, Corin Soles, Alan Brown, Ambrose Ingram, Stephen Morris, Sam Newman, and James Hahn. Because the amount of m- money that you support us with each month, we're able to put out this content on a regular basis. Thanks a ton. So we were headed this way before the break, um, and really it kind of gets to the heart of um, where all of this uh, idea of this episode came about, which is, you know, play as adults. Because as we go back to the definitions that we had at the very beginning, which Patrick was a huge fan of, both of those definitions focused on, you know, play as a child activity or an inconsequential activity. Um, Obviously, um, because I you know I put out this podcast, I think play as adult is very important it 's a big part of my life. It always has been, um, and i 've returned to it several different times um, so i 'd be curious, um starting with you, Heather um, you know I know Patrick plays games because i I know Patrick, but do you as an adult you know have people over and play games, are there games that you and your husband play? Do you consider yourself a quote unquote adult gamer at all?
2: I would not describe myself as a gamer um, But when quarantine happened, we every week put on a Zoom pub quiz. He he runs a martial arts business. So one way to keep the group cohesive was to have a weekly pub night, which is what they did physically um, before COVID happened. But then just took it digitally. And, you know, I'm normally home with the kids on Friday night, but that allowed me to participate. And it was great fun to be a part of that. So I wouldn't say I'm a video game player, but I do like the sort of trivia intellectual games. Yeah.
1: Well, that's interesting. So he has, you know, he's already established a pod, a group right through with the shared interest of the martial arts. Mm -hmm. Um, But sought out a game as a as a way to bring the group together in a different way and it's actually brought you in as as well so that that's interesting i'd be curious to know um you being an outsider to a certain degree and being relatively new to this to this group what do you see as the type of interactions or what's being gained by this group of people that already get together for martial arts but yet do this as well
2: I mean, the, the, the pub, the game, it was just sort of an excuse to have the social glue remain intact. Um, and I, I know all these people, they're, they're great people. They're like my big brothers and sisters and, I I was just there for the sarcastic commentary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, now um I found out during the break and I didn't realize this that uh you spent a bit of time in Japan um mm-hmm. living in Japan. I'd be curious to know, you know, culturally, uh both as children as adults, how gaming uh what you saw different as far as gaming and and play.
2: Yeah, um It it was different, in my opinion, gomenasai, if I, um, you know, (laughs) culturally offend any of my Japanese friends. Um, I I felt that games there were a lot more structured. Um, Just as an example, we used to attend the... um, the local baseball games. We lived in a town called Kashima City, and there was a very famous baseball team there called the Kashima Antlers. And the the way of supporting the team was incredibly structured. There were chance that everyone had memorized. You know, there was a certain prescribed way to do every piece of the game, uh, not just playing the game, but how to support the game. Um and it was it was an amazing spectacle.
0: That's that's so crazy because an American baseball game, you could literally stand up and yell anything and it would be okay.
2: I know the more disorganized the better here, I think. And, and
1: do you think that that's telling? I mean, in your mind, what is that? What's that reflection? Is that a situation where you think that the culture has impacted the play? Or is that is that been a uh, something that's bubbled up because of the of, of the, how structured play is? Because, you know, do you see that as a as a societal um, afterthought?
2: Yeah, I feel like it's more of a reflection of the culture. There's very much prescribed in Japanese culture. There's, you know, in a certain situation, this is the thing you must say. In a certain situation, this is the gift you must give. This is the amount of money you must give. And so when you play a game, this is the cheer you must say. Um, so there's comfort in that. Um And the Japanese are certainly creative people, um, but I definitely think the way games are played there is a reflection of this. There is something for each situation.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, Patrick, one of the things that I have, uh, I have a lot of different people on the podcast and one of the, to the traditional question I ask somebody, because typically the people I have on are involved in games, either they're in the industry or they're uh, experts at a particular game or something like that. And usually my first question is, is, you know, how did you get into gaming? And the typical story, you know, will be, you know, founded as a young adult, uh, uh, you know, 10, 10, 15, somewhere in that age, played all through high school, a little bit in college, then I left game right? Stopped playing games altogether. And then early thirties, late thirties, early forties came back and found it again. Um, How about for you, Patrick? I mean, you played a lot of games, obviously we did in in high school and and bled into college as well. Did, did gaming leave you and then come back at all, or has it always been a part of your life?
0: I don't know. I guess it would depend, you know, there's, a game can encompass a lot of different things. Like I would argue because um, I, I know what you do with um belly dance Heather I would argue mm-hmm. that that's a game everybody's playing a game especially the yeah, way that you've absolutely. explained how that you guys do it that that's that's a game like play encompasses a lot of things um I guess you know there's for me I guess what brings me back to it and the value that I see in it now is more than any one game is that as everybody becomes seems to become more isolated and there are these forces pulling us apart, getting a group of people together to interact, you know, and play a game. Now, sometimes like you get people together and it's, it doesn't matter. You can just sit there and you, you everybody talks so well and this has something to say and they get along, but you know, you don't always have that, um, that social fabric there. And I think that a game is just a great way to start to build that and mm-hmm. take all the pressure off the interaction. So you can, it's like, um, cause I do the same thing with Emerson. We'll sit there and we'll play, we'll play a video game and he'll talk to me because we're not face to face, you know, and he'll open up in ways that he doesn't when we're, t- when we're, you mm-hmm. know, both looking at each other. Um, so I, I, I guess that's, uh, that's kind of what brought that, you know, brought that back. And then th- there's also an element, and I don't know what to call this, but, um, Do you remember that god awful quarter stealing game, Gauntlet?
2: Yeah, that's that's Sean and Glenn's favorite game at the moment. (laughs) Warrior
0: needs food. Warrior badly. Warrior. Uh, So right. So we played that game, and like I would play with like one quarter, and that game was just designed to separate you from your money. It's worth worse than a slot machine because your your health was the amount of quarters you put in, and I was you know I didn't have any more quarters. I was a kid. I didn't have any really money of my own. And I always made a vow that one day I would, I would find that machine in a dark alley with rolls and rolls of quarters and just <laughs> beat it. Um, and then of course, you know, you can get a simulator and you can play it. Now and you're like, this game is terrible. Why would I waste my time on this? <laughs> um, but the principle is like, we wanted to do things and play games that we couldn't do or we couldn't get all the supplements, you know, for, and now we could get everything. You know what I right. mean? It's like,
1: yep. um, there's a different but, level of scarcity, right?
0: Yeah, well, it's not you're you're in control, and you can get things. And there's so many more, you know. There's so many other great games now too.
1: So I'd be curious, Patrick, because um, I remember it. I don't remember how long ago it was uh, this happened. I remember you sending me a picture on my phone of you discovering the game Gaslands. Um, oh, right there. Yeah. You and your buddy uh, it was Brandon, I think. That uh, yeah, you
0: were Brandon was our... across the street, and yeah, we we gave. So-
1: uh, yeah. where did that come from so like at some point you said you know what i'm gonna go and explore uh someone finds it um and it becomes a thing that the two or three of you do can you kind of walk me through how that happens
0: uh i found it i think i read about it on boing boing and i was like man that is that sounds great and the you know the book was so, you know, miniature, I mean, obviously, you know, miniature games, you know, they they can be very expensive. And this one's just like, Hey, you got a matchbox car you want to do something stupid? Like, and it, the game's hilarious because the, the physics of the game and the interactions, they just get so out of control. Um, But you can customize the thing to your level of, and that became really fun. Um, But I found it and I was like, this is cool. We should play this. And the, and uh, the other guys jumped in. And then of course, you know, Brandon had to ruin it for everybody, but. Guy's artistic skills are off the chain. <laughs> he took, he, he made antennas by taking little pieces of plastic, plastic and melting it with a lighter and pulling it out. So it'd make these whip antennas. Like, yep. just, my God.
1: And that ruined it for you, did it, Patrick? Uh,
0: no, it was just like, I can't even, like, I was feeling pretty good about painting this thing. And now I'm <laughs> like, okay, fine, you win. I guess I'll just, so put a sillier turret on this. I don't know. What
1: I'm- <laughs> so, um, one of the things that um, is often discussed um, uh, on this show is the analog nature of tabletop gaming. So whether it be role-playing games, miniature games, board games, um, and it's something that I attribute that I like um, is the analog nature of it. Um, uh, how about for you, Patrick? I mean, is is there the ability, because you spend a lot of time on the computer just like I do, um, mm-hmm. even though we're in completely different works. Is there value that you find in unplugging and, and, having an activity that you can do that doesn't involve staring at a screen?
0: Yeah, I stare at a screen too much. I just, just too much. Um, yeah. it's, it's nice to move objects around. It's nice to, you know, paint something, carve a piece of wood. I like the, the, the physicality of things. You move the thing. Like, you could say that, like, take, take something simple like checkers. There's no difference between playing checkers on a computer and playing on a board across from somebody. It's a totally different game. It's a totally different game. It's not really enjoyable for me to play certain games online.
1: So, Heather, I'd I'd be curious um, what your thoughts are. Um, uh, Patrick obviously has been involved and still involved in the uh, advertising industry. And I was uh, my wife. Uh, worked for an advertising agency. I remember the first time I went to the office uh, where she worked and it was, it, it looked like Adam Sandler's apartment in one of his movies, there was, you know, video games up here and a foosball table there. Um, and you know, there was, it was kind of at the time where it became fashionable to have play at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that concept of, you know, ping pong tables and, you know, uh, open areas for that to happen. Um, It's come in and out of fashion since there. Um, Do you have any thoughts about, you know, play at work and whether that has any importance at all?
2: Yeah, I, I think it can be a positive thing in certain fields. You know, if your field is being creative and developing ads and, you know, I think it makes sense if you need to you know, work with someone, play a game, tap into your creativity, and that will come out in your work. Other types of work, I feel like a more quiet, focused environment would be preferable. Um, But there are kids growing up in a very distracting world. And so that may now be their New normal, you know that may be what they're seeking out in terms of a workplace um so they may they may feel more comfortable in a very noisy <laughs> <Drucky Jesus>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> environment
1: like that. <laughs> What did you see, Patrick? Um, having been in the industry and and worked in in an advertising agency or office similar to what I described, did you find that as a good thing, a bad thing, um, a little bit of both? Well, I think
0: anytime you do really intense um uh, knowledge work, I think there's a couple of things. One, you only get two to three hours of real focus a day, no matter who you are. Um, and I, that's been I've had that born uh, that. Experience played back to me from people across a lot of different disciplines and in industry, and they're like, "Yep, yeah, that's all you get." Um, to reset the brain, it's good to go do something else. So for me, creativity, or creatively, and I wouldn't even just say creatively because you know people who are doing very intense knowledge work, um, you you the, it, you have to take a disciplined break, really, right? So you have to step away from it to give your subconscious time to process what you're working on. But you have to be very disciplined about going back to it. So that makes, um, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the function that, that play serves there. What, uh, the other thing that I saw, which is we would always play games. So the, the problem, one of the biggest problems in the modern world is, uh, boredom, right? You just get bored. We would play games to alleviate boredom all mm-hmm. the time and it wouldn't, it wouldn't really matter. So, uh, there's this guy I know he was uh he was a uh, an account lead, and he would every time they would go to present to these dull clients, he would hand out words to people, and there would be like, or they would all have a word and it, the last person to use the word in the meeting and not be noticed would lose and have to buy drinks. Nice, you know, and, but, but you couldn't let on, you couldn't, that there was a game. So, and they were always, you know, kind of strange or difficult words, but that's a way to take something that's, you know, boring and you're not interested in all of a sudden, boom, we're alive. We got a game. We're playing a game here.
1: Well, and now boredom does a different thing now now it's now we've got filler for that right um because now it's um heather when you see someone gets bored the what they do is not sit down and grab a book or uh do anything like that they grab their phone right and they start flipping through their phone and 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 having that uh um activity zero zero calorie activity um mm-hmm. heather is that something that that you battle with uh yourself
2: Yeah. I mean, I like to say that I am not on my phone 24 seven, but, you know, we all do it. It's very addicting. Um, But I, I there's absolute value in just sitting with yourself and not distracting yourself. And the same is true for children. You know, they're growing up grabbing a device in the same way we are and a lot of parents don't want their children to be bored because that's when trouble happens (laughs) god forbid there's a spare moment that they're sitting idle um but that's taking away an opportunity you know distraction is a lost opportunity to create something new um and be with people so it's definitely a a disadvantage so
1: i feel like this is going to be craig's an old man speech here for a second so put put up with me i feel like something changed right because i remember as a kid um god forbid if i said to my mom or dad i'm bored because that would just be a a, a, a get out of my face right they would get get out of go find something to do get out of here but i know what you're saying heather is there seems like there's been a transition where you know now you can't let your kid get bored right you you have to keep your kid stimulated you have to keep your kid engaged in something um do you have a sense of how well first of all am i right do it has has there been a change or is that just old man craig remembering something that that really hasn't changed at all Uh, and if it has changed do you have any kind of sense of why it changed
2: I agree with you. So I'm old lady Heather all the way. Okay. On that one. Um, I, I can't really pinpoint why it's changed, but I imagine just the availability of ways to distract children, you know, whether it is electronics or whether it is, you know, all the extracurricular activities or camps that are available. You know, we used to have three months of wide open summer where we were making mixtapes and listening to Casey Kasem's top 40 and, you know, being out in the cul-de-sac, you know. yep. And now, you know, there's never a free moment of looking for something to do.
1: When you were teaching Montessori a or even a Tinker Garden, did you find parents of the kids you were teaching struggling with the somewhat unstructured nature of of Montessori?
2: I mean, I think the good thing is that people are realizing this is happening and that now they're seeking out ways to be with their children or involve their children in open ended structured play. So, you know, they're signing their kids up for classes like Tinker Garden, which is on the calendar. But then they can go and have an hour of creative, problem-solving, messy play. Um, so I think just the awareness is building that there's been a shift and all these parents that grew up in the ways we did are kind of reminiscing and wanting that again for their own children.
1: Patrick, how about for you? When did, when did it all, when did the, we were perfect, right? The, the structure that we had and how we grew up uh, I mean, is just the way look everybody up. should just have look up. <laughs> <laughs> But up. Uh, but I mean, in your mind, when did it change? Um, and uh, this is, uh, the, how, do you, this, how do we fight it?
0: This is a great question. And um, well, I think, I think if you want to, if you want to fight something, you have to be pretty precise about the definition of the problem. Okay. Um, but let me answer, answer the only things that I can guess. And and like this is a complex thing. Complex, complex events don't admit of one um, cause. Right. So
1: I need you to oversimplify it, Patrick. Come on. <laughs> it's the Russians. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Um, <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, no, but, you know, we,
0: we're a lot the, the the role that kids played. Like you can't take away the fact that um, uh infant mortality rates, you know, are totally different than they were a hundred years ago. People would have kids, they would have a lot more kids, right? Families would be larger. And you you kids raised themselves, right? The whole structure of having a family and what it meant to be a parent and the fact that you that you would lose a large family would lose several children guaranteed, like up until recently. So parenting was yeah, very Yeah, but we're different. not
1: that old, Patrick. It's not like kids were dying left or right when you and I were a kid. I'm talking about the transition from no, our I, generation.
0: I, I know, I know. I'm getting to that. So then what you have is you have people are having fewer children. So each child is more precious. Okay. Right. And the nature of parenting and extended families has changed. So parenting's very different. And that was, that was happening with us. Like we, my grandparents were nowhere around. Like when when I was growing up, like we didn't have an extended family. You didn't have an extended family around. And that's also very different to, for most of humanity in terms of, of, you know, child, child rearing and raising. And now we have the ability to monitor and constantly be in touch. Like, um, like some questions that come into this are like, if, how do you develop a, an executive function or really strong decision-making skills on your own when at every Second, you can go ask somebody else, or you can text them, or you can right. look up a thing. Right? What does that mean for problem solving skills? So these are all these are all changes that have really been been coming that are that are huge that nobody thinks about. I think that for a variety of reasons, we overprotect children now, and we don't expect enough of them. We don't give them an adequate amount of danger. Um, the one of the things that I talked about with Roughhouse was. Um, if you if you pad a playground, you don't make kids safer. You just shift the risk off campus, right? Because gravity and concrete are facts of life. And I'm not saying that pe- kids should play on broken knives, but I'm saying that that if you're doing things for liabil- liability's sake rather than the development of the child, you're going to run into a problem somewhere there, right? Um, you know, so th- that's that's very different. What are some examples? Like um, uh, F- Farragut, uh the guy guy wound up being the admiral. I heard a story about him that at 14, the captain was shot off the deck of the ship and is a midshipman. Like, just look up what midshipman did at 14 years old. Yep. And in, in like, he commanded a ship of the line in battle and won. Like, we can expect a little bit more from kids at a younger age. And then uh, the other thing that's happened is there's, there appears to be to me this gap um, between, uh, you know, it's a sort of adolescence, right? Adolescents are useless. They know they're useless. We don't ask them to do anything. They don't have a useless, useful role to play in society. They're kind of like um, senior citizens, right? And we just, we just want to lock you away until you change to your next state. Like it's, so that that's, a, that's another thing that's very unnatural in terms of history, right? So like, how do you, I mean, maybe some of the problem was, I mean, that, that was the way w- was when we were growing up. Like we didn't necessarily have, although we had jobs. Yeah. Um, uh and but now like you know how do you you know even as a even as a teenager right you know whether you're useful to anybody else or not and if you're not it eats your soul yeah so, sorry that's probably a bit more of an answer than you were looking for but what? i got on a soapbox damn it i'm old <laughs>
2: I figured I'd inspire that. (laughs) I think part of, you know, making playgrounds so safe or situations so safe for kids, you're taking away an opportunity for them to develop any kind of resilience. Mm. So, you know, there's no reason for them to seek out an activity in the first place because they're all just handed to them. But there's no reason to persist at something, you know, if there's someone always there to step in and solve the problem, you know, they're, again, not given that opportunity to, to really let it play out as an experiment. You know, if you don't learn these ways of solving problems as kids, or to, you know, really develop a sense of resilience in, a little bit of a tough situation then that, that's certainly going to lead to adolescents and young professionals never really launching yeah in their careers
0: well there there's a lot showing up in the data about um anxiety and neuroses in young adults and and suicide rates i did that um essay on hope uh podcast and f- like fully 50% of uh, adults 18 to like 30 have admit to having seriously contemplated suicide in the last 30 days and the suicide rates are up and there's, there is a lack of resilience. There's, there's, there's something going wrong with our young people.
1: Well, I mean, it comes down to, and I think uh, I've talked to you about this, Patrick is, is th- this feeling that we can't let pe- let, let our kids fail. Um, Lord knows my, my parents let me fail several times <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. And um, you know, it's something that I'm trying to do with Cecilia is is to make sure that it, it's OK. It's OK that you that it didn't happen. And it's something that, again, not to boy, we're going everybody listening to this is going to send their kids to Montessori by the time we're done. <laughs> um, it was something that uh, that I loved about Montessori was, you know, when when my what I when I was observing and I saw my my daughter struggling, my first parental instinct was mm-hmm. uh, to help. And it was, I loved the fact that that didn't happen. Right now, obviously, if she sought out direction, she would get it. But it wasn't Mm -hmm. a uh, she was allowed to fail. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's it's something that it is a conscious, a conscious thing that I try to make sure that I'm still doing Mm -hmm. um, and maintaining for that. But, Patrick, that gets back to what you're talking about in the resilience, the resilience piece, um, you know, the uh, and it's not something really we saw um, at our, at our age, but my sister as a teacher has seen, saw it, which is, you know, the kid gets a D now when I got a D or a C in my case, cause I never got D's, <laughs> but when I got a C like m- my ass was grass for lack of a better, like I-, I was in trouble. I was grounded for an extended period of time. And I remember when my sister started teaching, she, her telling me that, you know, when she would give a C, The parents would come in and try to negotiate it out, try to figure out what what was what was wrong in the classroom that led to my child getting a C. Um, And and that gets back to your point, Patrick, which is this this inability to allow failure
0: or or to to let kids have like I, I don't think that kids should sign enter into contracts. I'm not saying that. But these are people they have agency. Like they have to be, I, I forgot what it was, but it was, something, uh, it was something with our oldest and he was doing something in school. And Christy's like, what are we going to do about this? I'm like, I'm going to talk to him about it, but he's going to make his life as hard as he wants to make it. And there's nothing like you're going to have to like, buddy, that's not like at some point
1: it's out of our control. He's going to have to choose to do something else. Have you seen your oldest, Heather, head down a path and you've kind of wanted to nudge him and help him out a little bit, but uh, you're able to kind of let it happen?
2: Um, My son is kind of a, a Buddha child. He, <laughs> all of our friends say, you know, like, this isn't fair. You know, he he's always been very calm. And I attribute that to just taking him outside a ton when he was a kid. Um, but his sister is paying us back in dividends. She's much harder work. Um, I I wouldn't say, you know, I've had to worry about him heading down a path of making poor choices. I think I I worried more about You know, I don't want him to be the recipient of something. That's my tender mom heart. But as a teacher, I know that he has to experience some hardships that way. You know, like if he's having a disagreement with his friends or, you know, all of his friends are into this one ball game at school, but he doesn't want to play it. You know, he has to learn how to navigate. Well, if I don't want to play that game because I'm not good at it, I either need to spend some time figuring out how to play it better, or I need to choose a different group of friends who are playing something different. And so that was something that was pretty important to him last year. And we just talked about it. And, you know, he kind of knew he had those two choices. And in the end, he Decided to team up with another friend and they became expert fort builders on the playground. So, you know, he he went through the middle and figured out his own way Um, and and not necessarily my own kids, but I see in the classroom every day, you know, I have three to six year olds. So that's a big age range and a big um, range of social development and emotional control. And so in any given day, we could be talking to a child about why it's not okay to bite someone or grab a toy or, you know, Here's what you say in this situation if someone's body is too close to your space, you know. So we're constantly offering language to our children that they can take and solve the problem themselves. Um, And that's one thing I think you and Patrick, you and I have talked about before, Patrick, that when you founded Rough House, you know, you hated how the principals and the teachers kind of Took the situation out of the kids' yep. hands, you know, and and robbed them of that opportunity to figure it out and solve their own problems.
0: I mean, I think my my job, one of the ways I conceptualize my job as a parent is, I'm not there to keep my kids from being hurt. I'm there to stop them from getting maimed. You know what I mean? Like, I can't I can't isolate them from the consequences of the world. I have to just give them the level of difficulty they can handle so they can figure out how to navigate it and be there as a safety net to make sure that doesn't like uh, like for perfect example is having a fire in the fire pit in the backyard. And having a kid around fire. Well, I'm there to make sure you don't fall in. I'm not there to make sure you don't burn yourself a little bit because you have to do that to learn what fire is. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yep. That's very, very true. Well, guys, I appreciate you taking the time um, and coming here. It was a kind of a nebulous subject right from the beginning, so I wasn't exactly sure where we were going to navigate to, but I, I like I like what we, what we covered. Um, and let's be honest, you know, this subject could be a doctorate uh, for somebody um, at any point in time. Um, Heather, is there anything uh, before we go that you'd like to mention, plug, or uh, give a shout-out to?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is, What we talked about before, you know, games are great, but moderation is great. You know, take your game outside, get your kids fresh air, get them the physical movement, let them have freedom to solve their own problems. Definitely check into Montessori Education and look up your (laughs) local Tinker Garden classes.
1: (laughs) I like it. How about for you, Patrick?
0: Uh, I just just want to. Probably stress again that we we're not we don't understand what play is like you said it's a good doctorate and and having delved into that a little bit like it's deep it's old it's very powerful and i would not i anyone who underestimates its importance either culturally or personally or interpret like is is doing something foolish and i guess uh if anybody wants more of my ramblings i, I do have a uh, pretty active presence at patrick e. McLean. so
1: Yep. And I will uh, link to that. Uh, Patrick uh, is putting out some good stuff there. Um, big fan of his podcast. And right now uh, you've got a book that I think that my audience would be interested in. Can we talk a little bit about the book? Okay.
0: Yeah. So I wrote this, I uh, read this series called How to Succeed in Evil. And it's about a guy who's a consultant for supervillains and he tries to help them be more villainous and profitable and efficient and all that stuff, but they don't listen because he's megalomaniacal. So I guess I um, this would be the fourth book in that series. It's called mm-hmm. Crazy Psycho Murder Tree. Um, they're available as audiobooks. It's available on Amazon. It's available anywhere you might want to buy an audiobook. Um, and then, yeah, there's, there's, there's a few of those. So it's Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett-type satire, loving send-up of the superhero genre, which we both love so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, that we do, that we do. Well, guys, thanks again. Um, and for those of you that listen to the end, thanks a bunch. Take care. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss uh, the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy, folks. Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools – a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Right. Nice natural transition.
0: So Heather, I got a question for you. I don't know how you want to work this in, Craig, but but since you lived in Japan, like, did you see any difference culturally there in
1: play? Shut up, that's a great question. I didn't know she lived in Japan. I got it. Oh yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right,
2: (laughs) and England, but I don't know. That's not quite as culturally different. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> there there is a big difference.
0: So somebody, well, I mean, you just you just throw the u in the end of the word and flip the r and the e around. So I, I just got this uh, job from a lady in in London, and she asked me about being able to do get people to do different voiceovers. You know, whatever. If I had talent, I'm like, yeah, I know, I can. I source people from all over the world, and we can do that. And I almost said, in fact, I know a guy who can do an absolutely incoherent Glaswegian accent. <laughs> Her husband went to, went to school in Glasgow.
1: So kind of oh, okay, there, nice, like, nice, nice, nice. All right, I'll bring us back. Ah, very good, very good. Thank you. Um, we actually this probably ended up being a short segment because we talked about a good bit of this, which is good. Um, is there anything specific that um you think we should touch on? Well, I don't think that definition of play is
0: actually the dictionary definition, either the noun or the verb one, is actually very right. Okay, good. We'll start there. Um, <laughs> yeah, not, not I I don't even mean to be a contrarian. I just.
2: Oh, you, yeah, no, right. no, no, Patrick.
1: <laughs> sure, Patrick. <laughs> oh Lordy! All right, I'm I'll attacked. Us, I'll bring us back. <laughs> I have children between the ages of you know three and seven all in the same room just being self-directed and everything it's incredible um but i completely lost track of what i was going to ask you <laughs> damn it um hey are you still here look uh podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean if you're here, you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care. Two hunters are out in the woods when one of them collapses. He's not breathing and his eyes are glazed. The other guy whips out his cell phone and calls 911. I think my friend is dead, he yells. What can I do? The operator says, Calm down. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's a silence. Then a shot. Back on the phone, the guy says, Okay, now what?